I don't know about you, I'm really looking forward to Thanksgiving and Christmas, and it's going to be here before you know it. And I love my family, but every year this happens. I walk in, there's so much anticipation. I haven't seen these family members in a long time. I'm looking forward to the food. And then there's this one family member that walks in, and they ruin everything. I don't want to make eye contact with them. They're socially awkward. We have nothing in common. Maybe they've hurt me and we haven't reconciled. And I literally think, I think in my head, I'm praying, Lord, not this Christmas. Not this Thanksgiving. And the sad reality, you know, I, I think that's probably a common experience for all of us. A lot of, you know, Christmas and Thanksgiving can be kind of a, a difficult time for us because family can be complicated. But I actually think, as I've reflected on that as we're rounding into the holidays, I think this same posture of suspicion and sort of dread towards certain family members actually actually characterizes more more often than not my posture towards those outside the church. It characterizes my posture towards those outside the church. And as the people of God, we're called to love those outside the church, those who would not profess faith in Jesus Christ, and we need someone to help us to, to relate to them, to those that are outside the church. We need help. So when we ask where can the church find help, the Sunday school answer, of course, is Jesus Christ, and that is the correct answer. And our passage this morning summarizes and, and it gets into Christ's conversation with a woman from Samaria, and they're at a well. They talk about water and worship, and many other things. But my hope, I want to name this on the front end, that in exploring this passage, that we might be drawn deeper into Christ, and out of that, be drawn to, the, to love those outside the church, like Christ loved them. That's what we're after this morning. If you'll follow along as I read, this is John chapter 4, 4-30. to 30. And as He had to pass through Samaria, this is Christ, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, weird as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew... Asked for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who, it, who, it, who is it that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, uh, you would have asked him, and, and he would give, sorry, he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? And are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. 
The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers were worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then, His disciples came back. They marveled that He was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come! See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to Him. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are told that Your Word is living and active. Lord, we know that this is true because You are living and active. Lord, we will not hear You if You don't give us ears to hear, our hearts won't receive You if You don't soften them. So Lord, have Your way with us this morning by Your Word and through Your Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So there's a quite a lot, of, lot going on in this passage, but I, I just want us to focus our attention on Jesus and the fact that He breaks barriers with this woman. He breaks barriers with this woman. And if you're familiar with this story then you know that Samaritans were people that you'd want to avoid in the first century if you were trying to be a devout Jew. Here's how one commentator describes the the relationship between Samaritans and Jews in this first century context. In Jesus' time, the Jews hated the Samaritans even more than they despised pure Gentiles, for they regarded them as polluting the blood of the patriarchs. It was for this reason that Jews often took one of the longer routes around Samaria rather than the direct and shorter road through the center of the country. So there are cultural and religious barriers between Jews and Samaritans here that would have been appalling for people viewing Jesus having a conversation with a Samaritan woman. And the first that we see is that there's a barrier of, the, of gender. A barrier of gender. Jewish rabbis were not to have female disciples in this context. And certain pharisaical sects like religious elites were extremely picky on what they allowed women, Samaritan women or Jewish women, like what they would let women do in worship and in their religious life together. The second is their religion. Samaritans worshipped multiple gods. And they actually only adhered to the first five books of the Bible, which were commonly known as the books of Moses, the the, the Pentateuch. And they, you know, the the temple was a huge deal in the first century with, with Israel, and they built their own temple. So in Scripture, worship, and even in the temple, they kind of did their own thing. This was a barrier. And then there's the barrier of sin. 
We learn that this woman has had several husbands. This would have alienated her even more in kind of polite Jewish society when you had your act together. And several scholars note this. I think this is fascinating. That you notice that the woman is actually alone. Kind of, we can kind of skim over that just basic fact. And scholars highlight that she's either alone because she was forced to go draw water to be alone. Like Samaritans and Jewish people forced her to get out of their presence. Or she wanted to get out of their presence because she experienced so much shame because of her sin with multiple husbands. So either she's alienated socially or she's alienated by her shame. So the point that we should feel is that this woman is a true outcast. This woman is a true outcast. And Jesus' interaction with this woman, again, because she's such an outcast, and He's seen as this Jewish rabbi and prophet, that's what most people thought of Jesus, this would have been appalling. Now, the first thing that we see here, which is fascinating, is that Jesus is tired. We're getting into the passage now. If you look in verse 6 again, I know there's a lot of text, this is towards the top. We're told that the Son of God was tired or weary from travel. And this leads Him to stop for water and ask the woman for a drink. I want us to just think about this. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, was thirsty. And He needed a drink. That is amazing. What a profoundly human and normal thing for Jesus to do. And so not only that, He asks for a drink because He needs one, but He asks this woman for a drink. He doesn't go draw water Himself. He doesn't ask another woman who maybe have had three husbands instead of five. He asks this woman for a drink. And this woman is shown respect by Jesus. He is, he's actually communicating that she has value. He's thirsty. He has a need that she can actually help him with. He's breaking barriers in even just not only talking to her, but showing vulnerability to her. Like, I'm in need here. So Christ is modeling for us what it looks like to relate the to relate to those outside the people of God. And actually to move towards them, not away from them. Again, this route, most people did not go right into Samaria. They go around. This text opens with saying Jesus had to go into Samaria. In the TV show Friday Night Lights, which is, if you haven't seen it, it's a show about high school football in Texas. But it's really not about high school football in Texas. It's about a lot more. There's this character called Tim Riggins, and he's an orphan who lives with his older brother, Billy, and um, when he's not playing football, he's usually kind of partying, or he's, he's kind of the typical prodigal son, um, and he's usually, if he's not partying, he's hanging out with his brother, which uh, Billy, uh, if you've seen the show, you know he's not uh, the typical kind of older brother that you want to look up to. Tim has a terrible reputation in his high school and in the town. Even just Riggins, it sort of reeks of this, like, be careful. But he's the neighborhood outcast. But if you know, if you've seen the show, you know that Eric Taylor, the high school football coach, um, you know he goes to church every Sunday. He lives a seemingly good and stable life. But Coach Taylor starts to pursue Tim very early in the show because he sees something in Tim. He begins to treat him with dignity, with respect, 
He sees past this sort of facade that Tim kind of, this swagger that he has that he, on, the, on and off the football field. He sees a loyal friend and teammate. He sees a faithful brother. He sees an extremely hardworking young man. And so he highlights the fact that he has value and he commits himself to a persistent kind of mentorship to Tim. And he encourages Tim and coaches him to flourish on and off the field. And really, that's what happens with Tim. He begins to flourish. There are five seasons in the show and you see Tim, a lot of things he doesn't grow past, but he flourishes. And it's because the coach went after him. So I want to ask you, who in society are you allergic to? Who are you allergic to? Maybe it's the sexually promiscuous. Maybe it's the homosexual community. Maybe it's that liberal denomination that's gone so far left that they can't do anything for the kingdom of God. Maybe it's that neighborhood that you always try to avoid driving through. You go around it just like you're trying to avoid Samaria. Whoever just came in your mind when I asked that question, those are the the exact people that we are called to love as followers of Jesus Christ. And I think a good step here is actually just to own the fact that we even have these like prejudices towards people, certain kinds of people, certain family members. Own them, confess them uh, to friends in the church and to God Himself and learn how to love them. What might this look like on the ground? I think one very practical way, it might actually mean because the, the sort of context of social media now, it might just mean taking a break from social media because every time you see that person post, like you hate them in your heart. Even if they say like good stuff. Maybe they're even posting really cheesy pictures of their newborn and you hate it. You hate it. Maybe you should take a break. For others, it might mean inviting gay neighbors over for dinner. It might mean apologizing to a friend that's outside the church, asking them for, your, for their forgiveness, owning the fact you haven't respected them and treated them with dignity. Whatever it looks like for you, this is our calling as followers of Jesus Christ. Because as Jesus went into Samaria, we are to go into Samaria. Where to go into Samaria. And the Bible teaches us that this is an important thing that I think that can get looked over in certain church contexts, is that God made human beings, those inside the church and outside the church, in the image of God. That's what Genesis 1 and 2, a huge part of the Bible is about as it starts out. John Calvin once said this about the image of God and those particularly outside of the church. We ought not look to reflect on the wickedness of man, but look to the image of God in them. An image which, covering and obliterating their faults, should by its beauty and dignity allure us to love and embrace them. May we be this kind of people. To be on the lookout for those outside the church and the image of God in them, and and praying that the Holy Spirit would restore this image into them completely into Christ's likeness, that they might flourish in the world. Now Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes further in His interaction with the Samaritan woman. And The next thing that we see is that they start talking about water. 
And after being caught off by this request, she essentially asks him, how in the world are you talking to me right now? You're a man, you're a Jewish man, I'm a Samaritan woman. I'm so, I'm, she's disoriented by this. She doesn't recognize who she's talking to and Jesus is, is patient. Look with me in verse 10. Jesus answers her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. And of course she doesn't get this. But Jesus is beginning to reveal Himself to her. Even, in, even as He's patient with her, she still, they start to round... Um, around the corner and they get closer to His identity as the Messiah. In verse 12, she then asks if He's greater than Jacob. This shows us that she's beginning to realize that He's not just a regular guy. The question about Jacob uh, is laced with theological implications. This is, of course, Jacob in the Old Testament. Christ isn't rattled by this. He doesn't get offended by this. Look with me in verse 13. Jesus says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But uh, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The first thing that we see during this water conversation is that Jesus knows that this woman is thirsty. Jesus knows that this woman is thirsty and He's inviting her to have her thirsts quenched. The thirsts of her soul. This living water is exactly what this woman is looking for. She's had multiple marriages. Most commentators point out that this woman, who is, she's expecting marriage and relationships and all that they bring to satisfy her, like in her gut. And I think it'd be easier for us as readers to kind of point the finger at the Samaritan woman and say, no, we haven't had five spouses. And I'm so glad that I haven't and I'm not like her. But you knew that when you woke up this morning, we have deep-rooted heart thirsts. That's us as well. Even as Christians, we have tasted the living water of Jesus Christ. And yet we go to relationships and status and money and securities and GPA and our pedigree to satisfy us. So now a conversation about water has become a conversation about salvation. Jesus is saying to her, there's only one source of water that can truly quench your thirst, and that's me. It's me. Your thirst for safety and love and belonging and justice and satisfaction can only be met in Jesus Christ. It's important that we know here that, just to to be clear here, it says that if you receive this living water, Christ says, you'll never thirst again. So don't hear what Jesus is not saying and what I'm not trying to say here. It doesn't mean that once you become a Christian, you won't suffer or doubt or struggle with all kinds of thirsts. That's not what the text is saying. It doesn't mean you become sort of an all-star Christian who never has to confess their sin anymore and how you are thirsty and how you're going to all the wrong places for fulfillment. But part of the beauty of this passage of living water, this image of living water, is that in the context that it refers to the source of living water. 
That is to say that Christ is using the metaphor to say that first, He is the source. And two, this source will never run dry. That is the point. You will never go thirsty because when you taste and see that the Lord is good through Jesus Christ, it will never run dry. You will get thirsty again. But we can take heart that Christ's living water never runs dry and we wake up with new mercy. We go to bed with new mercy. The next thing that we see is that Christ knows about her sexual sin. This is what we see in verse 16. Jesus shows His knowledge about the woman's previous marriages. Further than that, Jesus wants her to know that He knows. He knows, but He wants her. Like, I see you. I see that you're thirsty. He's saying, I know your past. I know your marriages. And I know you're thirsty. And I know how you're running from one place to the next. Christ recognizes what she most needs and offers it to her. Himself, living water. He doesn't view her or treat her solely in terms of her immorality. But He actually sees her and treats her not only as someone who has dignity, but someone whose soul is thirsty. John Stott, a theologian who was writing about sexual sin, writes kind of about the, kind of what lies underneath sexual sin. He puts it this way. And I think this is what Jesus is doing here. At the heart of sexual, the sexual condition, that is to say sexual sin, is a deep loneliness. The natural human hunger for mutual love. A search for identity. And a longing for completeness. Why do you think that U2's most popular song is I still haven't found what I'm looking for? Why is the parable of the prodigal son so popular even outside the church like in, in, his, like in uh, the study of like, the history of art? Prodigal sons, the prodigal son's story is everywhere in culture. Because non-Christians and us before we came to Christ, we look to all kinds of things to satisfy us. And maybe I'm describing you this morning. I think a serious temptation for us as Christians is to view those outside the church solely in terms of their immorality. We aren't to downplay sin and immorality, we should, but we should, look, we should learn to look through the immorality. And here's what I mean. When we look out in the culture and we see immorality of all kinds, we need to learn how to ask ourselves, what are they thirsty for? What are they thirsting for? This sin is not happening in a vacuum. There's something underneath it. They want to love and be loved by God. Now the next thing that we see is the woman inching closer and closer to Jesus' identity as the Messiah, the Son of God. She says, she responds after talking about their marriages. How in the world can you know? You must be a prophet. She starts to, she tries to change the subject from water to you're now a prophet. And now let's talk about worship. So when Jesus speaks of the spirit and truth kind of worship, he's setting it in contrast to the kind of worship that is bound by a particular geographic context. She's saying, 
we have to worship on this mountain. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not geographical location. It's spirit and truth. It's who you're worshiping and how you're worshiping. But the climax of the story is when Christ finally and explicitly tells the woman who He is. That's what's happening in verse 25. Look again there with me. The the woman says to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Now the weight of this statement cannot be overstated. It really can't. This is the climax of the story. It also encapsulates the glory of the person and work of Jesus Himself. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. And so we see in this conversation Christ leading the woman step by step, saying that He is the living water, He's the Messiah. When He says, I who speak to you am He. Now what we see here in this passage is really not anything new. And here's what I mean. Jesus is embodying what the people of God were always called to be. A light to the nations. Israel was called to bring the light of God to the Gentiles because they had a special covenantal relationship with God. And they couldn't help themselves but to embody God's character in truth and love to the Gentiles in every aspect of their lives. This has always been the core of our identity. And Christ is modeling this for us. And so we've acknowledged this morning that we need help. We've acknowledged that we are allergic to certain kinds of people. And we need help. And we must look to Christ as our ultimate guide here. That He doesn't view the Samaritan woman in terms of her race, her religion, her sin. All those things would have been barriers that He broke, that he, that he broke in, those, uh, in that context in the first century. He sees her as someone who has value and dignity. And underneath her search for satisfaction, someone who is thirsty. We must resist the barriers of our culture that they've erected between the church and the outside culture. That we might be a people that actively seek to highlight and celebrate the image of God in those outside the church. So let us not only seek to be like Christ to non-believers, but to point them to Christ. Let's not only go into Samaria, as it were, like Christ, but to point to Jesus as we're in Samaria. I want to close by reading this translation, this modern translation that this commentator, uh, the way his personal translation for verses um, 23. You don't have to look there, just, just hear this. This is Christ talking. Every single person who is drinking this water will get thirsty again. But whoever once drinks the water that I will give will never ever thirst again. In fact, the water that I will give that person will become in that person a fountain of water gushing up into deep, lasting life. Don't you want that for the world? Don't you want that for our country? Don't you want that for Spartanburg? for your family members and co-workers. And if you're a Christian this morning, 
May we be compelled knowing that we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and we were thirsty. Christ has satisfied us as living water that we might embody Christ's likeness to them in Samaria, wherever that is for us, whoever we're allergic to, that we might point them to Christ, that they might be formed into Christ's likeness and flourish as God longs for them to. Let me pray for us. Lord, we give thanks to You for Your Word. Thank You for how it stretches us, consoles us, and comforts us. And Lord, I I know, speaking for myself, what a convicting and stretching passage of Scripture. Lord, compel us to have fresh eyes as we look outside the church, outside of Your people, in our various spheres of life, that we might see beautiful lives lived out where the image of God is clearly on display rather than only seeing them in terms of immorality or in judgment. Lord, we need help here. Thank You that in Jesus Christ You've given us everything that we need. That we were dead and You've made us alive. That we were thirsty and You've satisfied us. Lord, now as we go to the table, remind us that in Jesus Christ we have everything that we need. We pray in His name. Amen.